0: Well, last week I sought to lay a foundation for our study in the book of Acts. We do not want to fall into the kind of errors that are, are common to Bible study where people will take a passage and they remove it from its context. That happens a lot, unfortunately. We must study Scripture within its historical and its grammatical context. And that includes understanding its overall purpose, and its structure. And we laid that foundation out last week. When you get to a, a book that is historical like the book of Acts, the danger of falling into the, uh, the trap of removing things from context actually increases. And so we want to be extremely careful here ourselves. Now, Acts is a history. We need to understand that from the beginning. It's not a theology. Luke Is writing this as a historian, and there's great theological insights, especially in the many quoted speeches that he has throughout it. But we go to the epistles to lay our foundation for theology and interpret acts in view of what the epistles say, not the other way around. Now, it's written by Luke. He's a companion of Paul, written about 62 A.D., that's the year that Paul was released from his first Roman imprisonment. So we know it had to be before that since the end of the book ends with Paul still in prison. He is writing to Theophilus. He's a Greek man. His name means friend of God. And it is a follow up to his first account, which is the Gospel of Luke. And in that, he began to cover everything that Jesus taught and did. That covers birth to ascension. In the book of Acts, Luke is continuing on. You could say it's the second book on the same subject. What Christ was doing, but this time a focus on through the Holy Spirit, through his apostles to the world. He does the same kind of research. firsthand research into eyewitnesses, but also in Acts, there are many stories he recounts that he was part of. He was the eyewitness. So it's a very accurate historical account. And Luke has been proven to be extremely accurate and true over and over again. Liberal scholars for years have tried to say he missed it here, he missed it there. And more research archaeology keeps coming up is Luke got it right. And those liberal scholars had it wrong. But in their pride and arrogance, they always want to say the biblical writer is wrong. But it's not true. We can trust him. I also pointed out last week that uh, Luke is writing a selective history he is concentrating on certain apostles, especially Peter, chapters 1 through 12, and then Paul, chapters 13 through 28, in demonstrating how they carried out the instructions given to them, his command to be his witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, then Samaria and Judea, all of that area, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. He could have done the same thing by picking on other apostles, but again, as I said last week, Peter is the one that opens the door to the Gentiles, Acts chapter 10, the visions, Cornelius. And Paul's the one that went through that door and spread it all through Asia Minor and then Greece, Macedonia, and then on to Rome. And so those are the two he concentrates on. Sometime when we get finally done with this, I'm guessing sometime about next summer, it'll take a while to get through Acts, uh, I will do one sermon just recounting what his uh, church tradition holds about each of the apostles. Because very similar to Peter and, and Paul, Faithful in the command that God had given them. They were his witnesses. And they demonstrated that power. Okay? Also, Acts is a historical transition. You're going from the old covenant to the new covenant. The old dispensation under which God uh, mediated his kingdom through the nation of Israel, through the law of Moses, into the church age, which we now live in, the dispensation of grace, where God mediates his kingdom through his people, and that is all of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior and are filled with His Spirit. Now, I put it that way. is because there are those who profess to know the Lord Jesus, but they don't have the Spirit. They're not Christians. You can profess anything you want. It doesn't make it true. The real mark is a true Christian has the Holy Spirit and guiding them. And we'll give you a little more uh, idea here in a few minutes about all the stuff the Holy Spirit does in you. And it's pretty exciting. Now, the first thing that Luke does here is he... He ties the two books together, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. The Gospel of Luke ends with Jesus's resurrection and ascension. He begins Acts with proofs of Jesus's resurrection and then his ascension. And so in verse three, he says to these, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking the things concerning the kingdom of God. The resurrection is pivotal in the gospel message. If someone is saying they're giving the gospel and they don't include the resurrection, they're not giving the gospel. It's really that simple. The resurrection is pivotal. In fact, Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 15 that if the resurrection is not true, then we who believe in it are of all men most to be pitied. We believe the lie. It's an extremely serious passage. Throughout Acts, we see this emphasis upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is specifically mentioned at least 25 times. That's a lot. There's only 28 chapters. 25 times it's specifically mentioned. Now, what are some of these convincing proofs? Well, we know by compiling what is said in the gospel accounts, in the book of Acts, and in 1 Corinthians 15, there are at least... Ten personal appearances of Jesus Christ after his erection and prior to his ascension. Let me just run uh, through a few of these for you. There's Mary Magdalene, John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. Then there was other women at the tomb, Matthew 28, 9 through 10. There are two men on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, 13 through 32. Peter, while he's in Jerusalem, the Lord appears to him, Luke 24:34. Then he appears to the disciples in Jerusalem. First, ten of them are together. Thomas is missing, that's John twenty, nineteen through twenty three, and then Thomas comes and he appears to all eleven together in Jerusalem, John twenty, verse twenty four. Then he shows up in Galilee, where he had told them to go, and seven of them are fishing. He shows up there. So he's seen by seven, and then all eleven in Galilee, Matthew twenty eight, sixteen through twenty. First Corinthians fifteen six says at one point, and we suspect this was in Galilee, he is seen by five hundred at one time. Now, maybe you can fool a few people, but you have 500's a lot, all at one time. And then uh, 1 Corinthians 15:7 says he was also seen, last of all, by James, the brother of the Lord. Now, after the resurrection, he was also appeared to Paul. Now, it's interesting some of the things that Jesus did after his resurrection. One of it, he ate with them. Acts 10, 40, 41, Peter recounts this. In fact, Jesus prepared the meal for them in John 21. He prepared the fish and he fed them breakfast. He also invited them to physically touch him a couple times. In fact, that was what finally convinced Thomas. Remember, he had said, I won't believe unless I can touch him. And Jesus invites him, touch me. I'm physically here. In fact, uh, it's interesting to note that uh, there in uh, Acts 1-4, where it's translated as gathered or assembled, the word can also be translated as eating with. It's actually translated that way in the New International Version. So, these are things that a spirit doesn't do. It's a physical resurrected body. Now, the greatest proof that we actually have of Jesus' resurrection is this change in the men who were so afraid before the resurrection or so bold afterward. In fact, you need to keep that in mind as we go through Acts and you see the courage of these men, the boldness of these men. These men who, at Jesus' arrest, what they do? They all ran away, didn't they? In fact, only two of them went with them. Peter followed, and John, we know, was in the court. He was a a friend of uh, some of the folks in the high priest. He was actually inside. When Peter is challenged by a girl, a servant girl, of being a friend of Christ, what did Peter do? He ran away. He lied, he cursed, and ran away. These men were afraid. In fact, John 20.19 says these men were hiding in the upper room because of a fear of the Jews. How in the world do you explain that a few days later, They're boldly standing in front of the Sanhedrin even, not just in the temple declaring, but the men who could kill them, can persecute them, and boldly saying, not only is Jesus risen from the dead, but you're the ones who crucified him. They point the finger at them. These are bold men afterward. And to me, it's the greatest demonstration of the truth that Jesus Christ is alive. The change in these men. And all of them, except John, died for their faith later. Verse 3 also points out that during this time, after his resurrection but before his ascension, Jesus was speaking to them concerning things about the kingdom of God. He is giving final instructions before he ascends to heaven and sends them out to be his witnesses. Now Luke uses the phrase kingdom of God 30 times in his gospel count and 7 times in Acts. An important phrase for him. God's kingdom, which is that realm in which God rules, includes both his universal kingdom... And his mediatorial kingdom. Now, by universal kingdom, we're talking about God's sovereign rule over all of creation. Now, when you get down to it, that means everything, right? God is sovereign over everything. That's his universal kingdom. What Luke is talking about here, though, is his mediatorial kingdom. God's spiritual rule over his people through different mediators. And that has changed over the years. You start with Adam the flood. He ruled through individual conscience. After the flood, there were human governments set up and he ruled through that, but they wouldn't obey God. Then uh, God chose one nation, one man actually, Abraham, and from him a nation that would follow and made covenants with them: The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant and ministered his kingdom through them. Now, the final part of the Davidic covenant was a greater son, someone who would be on his throne forever, and that is Jesus Christ. In part, he is ruling now, but not in fullness. That is still to come. There will be a time he will be on David's throne. In the in-between time, which we now exist, he is mediating his kingdom through the church. Again, believers who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's interesting what Peter calls us is that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, That may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. That was originally written to the Jewish nation. But in establishing the church, the verse is now applied to us as a church because we've been given that responsibility. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, have the responsibility to mediate God's kingdom and proclaim him to all people. To all people. That's what they were supposed to do to begin with. So Jesus giving them, the disciples, further instruction about the kingdom as it would exist in what is... Again, usually called the Church Age or the Dispensation of Grace, which we are now in. That was something that was hidden in the Old Testament. Now, after all of this, the indications are the disciples were probably pretty eager to get started. Okay, they had been given the Great Commission. While they're in Galilee, they are told here they're going to be get, gain this power. They're ready to get started. They've seen him. They're excited, but Jesus holds them back. He says, "You're to wait in Jerusalem." Because a prophecy made about Jesus, the beginning of his ministry by John the Baptist, had to be fulfilled first. And it would directly affect their ability to carry out Jesus' commands. There in verse 4 it says, And gathering them together, that is Jesus did this, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, no one can be part of God's kingdom or carry out God's instructions without the Holy Spirit. It can't be done. They needed to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came upon them as Jesus had promised and what John the Baptist had said as well about what Jesus would do. In fact, over in Matthew 3:11 at the beginning of John's ministry, and when he sees Jesus, what does it say about Jesus? It records him saying this, "As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's repeated in Mark 1.8, Luke 3.16, and John 1.31-33. All the gospel accounts record this. There's a difference between them. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is different than water baptism of repentance that John was performing. Now, water baptism and spirit baptism are actually contrast with each other. The comment here in Matthew contrasts baptism with water as opposed to baptism with fire. Water and fire are opposite elements, aren't they? They're very different from each other. John specifically says his water baptism for the purpose of repentance. So it's important to understand the origin of John's baptism. What was he doing? Because we need to understand that if we understand what Jesus is talking about here later. It began in Levitical law. Levitical law had many different ceremonies that dealt with cleansing. In fact, uh, ceremonial cleansing. If something was unclean, including humans, it had to go through a certain ceremony to be declared clean, righteous, to be able to use before God. Leviticus 15.13 even speaks of a person bathing in running water as part of one of these ceremonies. It was to set them apart and say, you are now eligible, ready to serve a holy God. Jewish proselyte baptism, which was a sign that a convert had changed from a pagan orientation to a Jewish orientation to serve the living God was then practiced based on these Levitical ceremonies. That's where it came from. It was demonstrating they had changed from their sinfulness and turned to the God of Israel. The baptism of repentance practiced by John is rooted in that ceremony, proselytes. Except John is not speaking to Gentiles, he's speaking to Jews. And that was new. They expected him to speak to Gentiles. That had been common for a long time. But to tell Jews they need to be baptized? Wait a minute. What are you talking about? It was a symbol of repentance. Repentance was the recognition and turning away from their sin to truly follow after God. It was an action in preparation for the kingdom, because that's what they kept saying. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Are you ready for it? Are you prepared for it to come? It acts is in keeping with what Moses said in Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10 talks about the circumcision of their heart. It's not outward ceremonies. It has to be from the inside, from your will, from your mind, what you believe and its actions that follow out of that. They were to love God with all their heart and soul. They were to walk in his ways. They were to fear the Lord God. That's what he meant by circumcise their hearts there in Deuteronomy 10. This was a symbolic action demonstrating this is what was going on. So John's baptism was new, a baptism of the Jews demonstrating repentance that they were prepared for the kingdom. Now it's interesting that Jesus, in his early ministry, his message is exactly the same. You can compare Matthew 3:2 with Matthew 4:17. Jesus and John the Baptist, same message. Repent, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Both were baptizing, or actually Jesus had his disciples baptizing. Now, this baptism of repentance was done in anticipation of the coming kingdom, symbolic of this cleansing away of sin. But it's important to understand the baptism itself doesn't take away the sin, it's symbolic of the religious rituals that were done to demonstrate it being set apart. It symbolized the righteousness, the cleansing given to the individual as they confess their sins and then place their trust in God. That's part of proselyte baptism, it's part of what Jesus and John were doing. You're cleanse. It's repentance. You've had a change of mind. Here is an action that follows. Or as John even told those that were coming, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. First one would be baptism. This is in keeping with that fruit. Demonstrate that there is actually some reality here in what you're professing. Now, Christian water baptism arose out of the baptism that John was performing. In fact, over in um, Acts chapter 19, 4, Paul makes a statement concerning the transition that's taking place. Before they had been doing baptism of repentance, as John had been doing, as Jesus had been doing, it is changed to a Christian baptism, being baptized into Christ identification with him. Here's what he says in verse 4. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus, in anticipation of Christ's coming. Now it says, and when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. These people were people who were disciples of John. So they had to get baptized twice, once in John, and now they're baptized in Christ. So there is a difference between the two. In keeping with Jesus' command in Matthew 28, 19, Christian water baptists have done the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just as we just had done with the Camuelas. That's what Jesus told us to do it, in his name. It's identification with Jesus Christ's death, burial, his resurrection. Paul makes the most clear of any passage in Romans 6. Here, baptism symbolizes the Christian is united with Christ in death. That's why immersion is so important with it. What is being pictured here? What's going on? I'm identifying with his death. That's why you go under the water and are buried. You, your old self, you have died. You're not what you used to be. And then you were raised up. Again, the water being symbolic of the grape, raised up out of the water, out of death, to what? Paul says, newness of life. You are a new creature in Christ. What you were is not what you are now. You're something radically different. Corpses don't walk around, right? You were made alive by Christ. Raised up to walk in newness of life, live a different way. Romans 6 is Paul's call for them to live in holiness, live according to what you are and that's why he goes back to that now baptism with the Holy Spirit is different than water baptism water baptism is an action of man symbolic of an inward change of mind and heart it's an action that you do you're not passive in it okay Uh, in fact uh, I have to say Nick you started to float you felt a little pressure I had to push him down okay but he got in that tub didn't he and it's an action that you do. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is different than that. In fact, in the passage here, the verb is in the passive tense. It is something, it is an action that God does to you. It's an action of God upon the person that changes their spiritual dimension. Changes what you are. All humans are born dead in their trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2.1, right? Titus 3.5, Ephesians 2.5, both deal with the same thing. The Holy Spirit regenerates. That means make alive. He renews. He saves you from your sins. That is his action. It's passive tense. This is what is done by him to you. In addition, the Holy Spirit then dwells in the believer. Romans 8, 9. This is, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In fact, different. We'll point this out in a minute. Different from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He stays with you. The Holy Spirit also baptizes you. In fact, that's the word there in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Baptizes you into the body of Christ. You become part of Christ's body. You become part of the church. He also seals you, or is the seal actually, of the promises of God. His presence is the proof that God will keep his promises. All the things he has promised in the scriptures to you are proven, sealed by the Holy Spirit in you. It is going to happen. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. The Holy Spirit also gives gifts, different spiritual gifts, so that you can serve him and empowers you to go do so. Again, Holy Spirit's ministry, Acts 1, 8, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 and forward. There are also a couple of specific promises given to the disciples about what the Holy Spirit would do after Jesus ascends to heaven and leaves and the Holy Spirit comes. One of them, John fourteen twenty six, is that he would bring to their minds remembrance of all that Jesus taught them. Why is it we can trust them in the Gospels to be accurate? Because the Holy Spirit brought to their minds everything that Jesus said. They didn't mess up. This is what he said. They are accurate. They didn't have to take notes. The Holy Spirit takes better notes than you or I. And he brought it to mind. Also in John 16, Jesus is telling them the Holy Spirit's ministry of convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, but also says that the Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth. Verse 13. And all this is going to take place after Jesus departs, the Holy Spirit is sent. So, as I mentioned last week, prior to this Holy Spirit baptism, the Holy Spirit's ministry on an individual would come and go, come and go. He doesn't stay. After this, the Holy Spirit comes upon the individual and stays. Jesus taught this to his disciples in John 14, 16, and 17. That is one of the transitions that we see going on in Acts. These were believers in Jesus. Were the disciples not believers in Jesus? They were his followers. But here's a transition. They did not have the Holy Spirit to begin with. Jesus leaves. The Holy Spirit is sent and comes upon them. Later on, as we follow Acts through, we're going to find the Holy Spirit comes upon people. At the time of belief. So it's one of the transitions we find from the old covenant to the new covenant. Now he says it's not going to be many days. And actually it ends up it's only a week following his ascension that the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Now what is it that Jesus commissions them to do? Get to verse 6. We find there's a question that develops. He's going to give them here's what I want you to do. You're going to wait. But they're thinking about this. Okay, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon us. And they're starting to think of all that they know about the Old Testament, all that they've been taught about Jesus as well. And we've got to question Jesus. So verse 6 says, And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? Is it going to happen now? Is this what we're talking about? We've got to remember, it's a very logical question for them. This is what they've been anticipating for the first time they started following Jesus. The restoration of the kingdom of Israel with the greater son of David on the throne. They very well knew the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. David's son would reign eternally. There's David's son, it's Jesus. Is this when this is going to happen? They certainly are aware of uh, things like Daniel 7. There would be an everlasting kingdom that was going to be established. Is this when it's starting? There's prophecies throughout the Old Testament, various prophets about a restored Israel. Is this the beginning of that restoration? There was the coming of the Spirit. In fact, uh, Peter's going to comment that in Acts 2. But this very specifically is what's going to push them about this question. We know that the Spirit's going to come, and this is the beginning of the restoration of Israel. Is this what we're talking about? Joel 2 and Ezekiel 36 both deal with that question. And then there's the parables of the kingdom that Jesus had taught them. Each of those deals with an aspect of a restoration. Is the kingdom then starting? And then you have to add in all these warnings that Jesus gave. Be ready. Be alert. You do not know. Are you ready? Are you alert? Logical question, isn't it? This is what they had hoped for from the time they began to follow Jesus. Is the kingdom coming? Remember, they used to even argue about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Is the kingdom coming? Is this the beginning of that? So Jesus' answer is not what they would expect. And yet it's a good reminder to them as well as us of keeping our priorities straight. Here's his answer. He says, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, that's an intriguing answer, isn't it? What in the world does he mean by that? Because there's so many ways Jesus could answer it. Couldn't he have just said, no, not yet? Short, to the point? Okay, I guess we've got to wait some more. I mean, that could have been just very simple. He could have said, well, no, not yet, but it is the start of the last dispensation. And, you know, he could have given an explanation either brief or very long about that. He could have started from that point and says, now I'm going to explain to you all of what's going to happen in the future. He could have laid that all out, couldn't he? He doesn't do any of that. One of the things that he doesn't do is significant here, there's no correction of their expectation. There are those who deny that there is going to be a restored Israel, that Jesus is going to reign on the throne. This is their expectation. There's no correction of it. Why? Because they're not wrong on that. Otherwise, Jesus certainly would have corrected them, but no correction on their expectation. Instead, all we find here is an extremely mild rebuke that they're not to be concerned about the timing of the restoration of the kingdom. God would take care of that according to his own plan. They were to be focused on the priority that God was giving them. You are going to be my witnesses and you're going to witness in all these places. You're going to spread to the ends of the earth. After the Holy Spirit comes upon you, that is what I want you to be focused on. That is what you're to concentrate on. That is what you're to do. Don't worry about this other stuff. Now it's important to note here, though, that Jesus had previously given them information about the second coming and the ending of the age. He had talked about that before. Matthew 24, Luke 12. In fact, we know that Jesus had also even admonished them to be on the alert. Matthew 24: 42, 25, 13, Mark 13: 13, 33. So why then this response that it was not for them to know times or epics which the father had fixed in his own authority? If he'd already told them things about that, what do you do with that? Well, first we need to understand the specific rebuke here is given again to men who used to argue about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. They were out of balance. They had been jealous of each other about what position they would have. In fact, two of them brought mom in to try and sway Jesus of, One on the right and one on the left. We'll get the big guns out. Mom's going to come and try and persuade Jesus. That's Matthew 20, verses 20 through 24. This mild rebuke quickly puts an end to all future squabbling about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And there's no record of them ever squabbling again about it. So certainly it has that effect. But there's another consideration we need to have. First, the word there translated as time, chronos, is a general reference to time, usually in reference to its course or span we get our words chronology from that. That's the sequencing of events in time and chronometer. We usually refer to a chronometer as a clock or a watch. The sense here in Acts 1-7 is the span of time or spans of time, length of time. Then there's epics or seasons, depending on your translation, kairos. This is an extremely fascinating word. It carries the idea of decisive moment or point. And what does that have to do with time? Decisive moment or point. It encompasses the events and characteristics of, of a period in which related events occur. And we use terms like epic, era, and season to carry this idea. For example, winter is characterized as a season that is cold. Summer is characterized as a season that is hot. The Victorian era encompasses all those things common to English society during the reign of Queen Victoria. And just referred to as the Victorian era. Something in common, an era. That's what this word is talking about. If we put both of these ideas together, Chronos and Kairos, here in Acts 1-7, we find that God has, by his own authority, fixed when the events of the future will take place, what will be the characteristics of those future eras, and how long those eras will last. That's all in God's plan. We have been given some general things, but we don't have a lot of the specifics, do we? In fact, that's one reason why eschatology is debated so much. We don't have the specifics. We don't know. All those things belong to God as they always have. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. These things which he has given to us belong to us and our children. But the sacred things belong to him. In fact, the conclusion here is that Jesus simply wants them focused correctly. Don't be concerned about those things. Keep the priorities of my commands. You're going to be my witnesses. Keep that in focus. Let God be concerned about how that all plays out in the end time events. Don't be concerned about this. And you know, that's a good principle for us in our own lives. It really is. Sometimes it's very easy to major in the minor issues. Do You ever find yourself doing that? Whether it's theological or even the stuff around the house. You spend a lot of time doing this little thing. And you know what? You forgot about the big thing. There have been some problems with the disaster relief. I'm not very happy with reporting because they're not talking about how extensive it is. My aunts and uncles, 90 to 120 miles away from the coast, north, they can't get around either because there are too many trees down. Uh, my aunt, uh, one who had been through Camille, said, which was actually a stronger hurricane, she says, I've never seen so many trees down. It's just, it's one big mess. That's a lot of area. But you know what? Somebody somewhere has been majoring on minors. Because some things that should have been happening weren't happening. Whoever it was, majoring on minors, there's sometimes serious consequences, right? Some people, if you're watching the news, you're seeing some people are majoring on minors. They want to get this stuff out of their house and somehow save it. Your your life is a little more important right now, you know? We major on minors. We need to be careful of this. A lot of time and energy go on things relatively unimportant. Or we may be seeking to understand things that God has chosen not to reveal, and then we may become dogmatic about things God hasn't revealed to us. Now that's not necessarily bad in itself to seek those things. In fact Proverbs 25: 25:2 20, tells us, "It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of a king to search out a matter." So certainly there is that aspect. And, and that's fine. But if that is being done to the neglect of the priorities that God has set. You're just simply wrong. We need to keep his priorities. And that's one of the things we learn here from what Jesus says. Now, the mission that Jesus gave them, we talked about that last week, was that after they would receive power from the Holy Spirit, they were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now, a witness is simply someone who has experienced something personally and reports what they have seen. They're eyewitness, they've heard it with their own ears. In fact, John uses that same kind of phrasing in First John. What we have heard with our own ears, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have touched with our own hands, we report to you. They're witnesses, eyewitnesses, first-hand witnesses. And a witness then is to tell others about Jesus and what he taught about God. In fact, so many of the early Christians were witnesses that were put to death because of their declaration about Jesus Christ, that the word here, Marus, which... Is the Greek for witness has been translated as martyr and has taken on the meaning of someone who dies for their belief. It, because so many died for their beliefs, for their witnessing of Christ, all Christians are to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and bear witness of Jesus Christ. What has He done in your life? And certainly, that's part of what the for the Camwell is. Their witness in baptism. I'm declaring to you what Jesus Christ has done in my life. They gave testimony here. Here is what he has done. We're all to be doing that. In verse 9, we find Jesus commanded the disciples away in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come upon them to be his witnesses Was the last recorded instruction. After that, his body is lifted up to heaven in his resurrected body. It says after these th- said he said th- these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, none of those present then and no one now knows how this was done. No one knows how Jesus just went up. Don't know. But we don't understand a resurrected body either. None of us have it yet. We know a few things about it. We know it's physical. You could touch Jesus. He could eat. And yet we know it's very different than ours because he could just suddenly appear in a locked room. John 20 verse 26. We also know that one day those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will have bodies just like his. And we're looking forward to that. I am. If you're not, well, you can. You can look forward to it. Now, Jesus' departure paved the way for future ministry because Jesus has a ministry in heaven now. One of the things he's doing, John 14, verses 2 and 3, is he's preparing a place for us so that we can come and be with him in heaven. That's encouraging. You know, my father's a carpenter. I'm glad that Jesus was trained by a carpenter. He's preparing a place for me, and I'm going to tell you, it's going to be really well built. Okay, He's also making intercession with God the Father on our behalf. Hebrews 7.25. That is a great thing too. The Holy Spirit makes intercession. Jesus Christ is making intercession. And then verse 10 tells us the response of these amazed disciples. And if you were there, you'd be doing the same thing. It says, and as they were gazing intently into the sky as he was departing, have you ever taken a helium balloon and, and let it go? And you just watch it, you know, and it gets smaller and smaller. And then you're standing there and someone else walks by and they look up and they look at you and they look up and go. You know, because what are you doing? He's like, can I get one last glimpse of it? Right. And those of us with glasses, we give up early. <laughs> I can't see it anymore. Some of you like I can still see it. Well, you know, that's what they're doing. He goes in the cloud and there's one last glimpse and they're staring. And then it says, Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. What a promise! He's coming back! And he's coming back the same way he went. In fact, we find that, uh, Revelation 1.7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. You see, his promised return is joy for the Christian. We get excited about that. That's our hope. It's our motivation. But we've got to remember there's another side of it. His return brings fear to the non-Christian. Matthew 25, 31 through 46 deals with all that. Even here in Revelation 1-7, there is... A mourning that's going to take place. Revelation 22, 12-15 adds this, Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render every man according to what he has done. Again, that is joy for the Christian, but that strikes fear in the heart of one who doesn't know him. Because a judge is coming. It's a motivation for us to live in holiness. Paul says it this way in uh, Titus 2. 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Why? Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's why. That's what they're looking for. He goes on, he says, dealing with Christ who gave himself for us that he might... Uh, redeem us from every lawless deed, purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's why we are motivated. When he comes, I want to be righteous before him, holy before him, living the way I ought. This is one reason Jesus and the apostles gave some many instructions to be alert and eagerly wait for his coming. They did not know the day or the hour would happen. The apostles called believers to be ready for the Lord's return as well. Romans 13, uh, verse 11 through 14. Paul said, the, the, the hour is to awaken. Quit sleeping. Wake up. He says that his return is nearer than it was when we first believed. He said, The night is almost gone. The day is approaching. It's at hand. Lay aside the deeds of darkness. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust thereof. That's a call to us. Are you ready? In 1 Corinthians one seven, Philippians three twenty and twenty one, Paul tells us we need to eagerly be waiting for our Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to transform our bodies. I'm looking forward to that, and I tell you, the older I get, the more I look forward to that. <laughs> Things don't work the way they used to. I'm looking forward to that. Are you? Second Peter three twelve, Peter says we're to be looking for and hastening the day of God. In anticipation, James 5.9 gives the other side of it. He describes him as a judge who's standing right at the door. Fear to those who don't believe. Are you looking for this blessed hope of the return of Jesus Christ? The apostles lived in an expectation that Jesus could return in their lifetime. They were looking for it. And though he is delayed, certainly the return of Jesus Christ is closer now than it was then when this was written, isn't it? About 2,000 years closer. We're closer. I don't know when it's going to be and neither do you. But God does. And he says we need to be ready. We need to be eagerly anticipating, eagerly looking forward to it. And that should be doing something in our lives. Are you ready? What will Jesus find when he returns? Are you pursuing holiness as the scripture commands us to in light of this anticipated return? Will his return bring you joy, shame, or condemnation? If it is not joy then I implore you, I beg you, talk with myself, talk with Pastor Crow, talk with one of our church leaders, talk with whoever brought you. You can leave today looking forward to Christ's return with joy. Not shame, not fear, but with joy. Father, we are looking forward to that, those of us that know and love you. And it will be an exciting day. The day when the events for the culmination of time really begin the events that start all coming together for the setup of the millennial kingdom. We are looking forward to all those things. But thank you that we don't have to worry about all the details. We don't have to be concerned about this or that. We simply have to be concerned about keeping your priorities. Father, walking with you in holiness, seeking to live in righteousness even as we have been made righteous by Christ. To demonstrate in practical ways, as Paul calls us in Romans 6, we have died with Christ and we have been risen to a new life. Father prod us on in each of those areas. That at his return, should we be alive and remain at that point, it will be with joy, not with shame. Father, and certainly not with fear. We would ask your mercy and grace again upon those who yet do not know you have not yet bowed their knee and acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord, have not yet believed and placed their trust in him that his death is sufficient to pay for their sins. Father, be merciful and bring them to repentance. Bring them to an understanding that they may know the joy of walking with you. Father, we ask these things because we want you glorified. And so even as John said, even so, Lord, come quickly. In Jesus' name. Amen.